Welcome. You're listening to the CMS Podcast, where legal experts and industry leaders from around the world provide key insights on a diverse range of topics. In today's episode, Tay L. Riula will explain his passion for digital identity technologies. We hope you enjoy the CMS Podcast. This episode was recorded during the 5th CMS International Technology, Media and Communications Conference in Amsterdam. Please visit our podcast channel for other episodes in the series. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Uh, thank you, first of all, for, for being here. I know a lot of people have come a long way. This sounds a little bit like a family wedding, where you thank everybody who's come from all over the place, but it is very much appreciated. Um, this is the fifth now of our annual uh, TMC, Technology, Media and Communications Conferences. It's the first time we've come outside, uh, away from home base for me, in the UK. But I've always been very keen that this should happen across uh, the whole of the CMS offices because we're a highly international group of people and uh, it's important that we express ourselves and uh, are visible right across the world. Um, my name's Chris Watson. I'm the head, I have the honour to head the TMC practice at CMS. Uh, which is a rapidly growing international practice. We added two more countries only last week, so it's, it's a big thing for us at the moment. And the more that this event moves out around the rest of the world, the happier I will be. Um, we have uh, decided on today's theme, which is sharing is scaring, uh, for a, a variety of reasons. One is obviously the fact that it's Halloween, uh, or very nearly, and therefore, there are many different ways of looking at everything. Uh, but also, we have identified right across the piece of communications, technology, and media that the benefits of new technology and progress are not unalloyed. They are not entirely pure. And that there are concerns and things that need to be managed. And that the first enthusiasms that come with new technology and new developments over time and more nuanced opinion and more nuanced way of looking at things develops. And you need to work out how to manage, how as little as possible to manage, the competition regulators would always say, but how you intervene and what, where you need to intervene, how to protect what needs to be protected without going so far that you inhibit progress. And that's the theme which comes across many of the uh, discussions we're going to have today. Um, <clears throat> we've got uh, separate uh, but related interventions, really, because um, technology, media, and communications have all converged now. It's happened, and uh, they all fit into each other. And the, one of the big underlying pieces is, is data. One of the biggest concerns of almost everybody who's active in this room is around gathering data, protecting it, controlling it, processing it, using it, monetizing it. It's, it's an underlying theme of so much of what we do. And uh, the big driver, really, and the big competitive tension is, uh, at the moment, who owns and controls data. And that is, indeed, very scary. The, um, <coughs> the, what we're seeing at the moment, most important, I think, is the interaction of politics and technology. There are a number of very difficult political situations around the world, leaving aside the elephant in the United Kingdom's uh, waiting room, uh, but where politics and technology are really confronting each other like this. And the 
the rules of that engagement and the rules of that dialogue are being thrashed out at a political level and at a legal level and at a regulatory level. And it under underpins a lot of what we're talking about. So we've got uh, some highly, really, we've got a very high quality bunch of speakers today. I, we're very lucky and uh, I'm very grateful to those who have, have volunteered, put their hand up and turned up. Uh, and I think that they will be able to give a number of takes on this, which we will then synthesize into a summary of what happened today. One of the uh, outputs from what we do is a lessons learned or a themes of the day document which comes out afterwards and it's normally pretty short we don't want to bore anybody with it but it's generally pretty, pretty useful and high quality and it serves as a kind of benchmark to, to see how things moved since the previous year so I'm looking forward to seeing that. One very important thing is we are here in, in this amazing uh, incredibly beautiful view uh, room of our Amsterdam office. I really like to thank the uh, Amsterdam partners for having made this available. Uh, it's a hugely impressive place really lovely turnout and um, we're very grateful that they uh, decided that uh, they would host this and they've put a lot of effort into it so I want to thank them for that straight up front and that also means that I can introduce you to Katja van Hanenberg <coughs> who has been uh, leading the team here putting today together and we're incredibly grateful to her as well for all the work that you've done. So Katja thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you, Chris, for the, um, yeah, for the kind words. And we're delighted to host the event today. Very proud. We hope it's, not, uh, it's the first one, but not the last one, that we'll have the TMC event uh, here. And I'm very much looking forward for what I think will be a very inspirational day. And I hope to hear from you also during the day your thoughts and ideas. And I'm uh, particularly proud that as a first uh, speaker, we have Tay. And Tay, for me, is the face on the debate and the discussions we've been having on trustful, self-sovereign digital identity. And I think it's remarkable what you have done and what you've achieved so far. And we're very curious for those who do not yet know you to hear your story. Uh, so I would like to welcome you to the stage today. Thank you, Katya, for the uh, introduction. I want you all to remember a remarkable day in your life a day that stands out. And I will share one remarkable day in my life. And my keynote today, I deliver it for the first time, so it's a fresh new talk. And I will expose parts of my personal life also for the first time. So one of the days that sticks in my head is 28 August 2001. I'm sitting in my car, in my dad's car, next to him. And we're driving to the US Embassy in Damascus. And I was so excited because I'm going to the US. I was so excited because I'm going to watch Super Bowl in Florida. And not the fact that I'm going to see my mom for the first time in 10 years. We reach the embassy, and the officer looks through our application, and he asks me, where are you going to? I say, I'm going to Florida to see my mom. And then he asks me, where were you born? I said, I'm born in Kuwait. So he looked at my dad and told him, where is the birth certificate in the file? 
And my dad gave an answer that at that time defined my life today. And this was his answer. He said, my son was born during the Gulf War. And in Kuwait, the birth registries got burned. So we cannot prove that he was born there. But luckily, when he was born, we issued a Syrian passport for him. And there it's written, he's born in Kuwait. Now, the look on the officer's face, I didn't understand at that time. But today, I understood that the look on his face meant, I don't trust the data on that passport. So please give us a proof. Because the officer's answer was to my dad, go get an official statement on that. And I'll see you back on September 13, 2001. So 28 August, we applied for the application. And 13 September was our second interview. Now, the first thing that came to my head, hey, number 13 is, is not lucky. So I had doubts. But little did I know that September 11, New York attacks will happen. I will not only lose the chance to watch Super Bowl, I will lose the chance to see my mom. Because the embassies were closed, and it was a day that changed the lives of billions of people, not only mine, but also your lives, my lovely audience. So what happened after September 11, in that, in that day, is a series of events that we are still feeling the ripple effects of them today. Agencies, acts, laws were introduced to snoop into our smartphones, our internet, our laptops, for the purpose of combating terrorism. So it became natural that intelligence agencies need to collect metadata. And from that day on, we always say we have nothing to hide. So why not? Why not the Dutch intelligence services tap into our laptops and our smartphones? We have nothing to hide. More or almost half of the Dutch people said that in the latest referendum. And that is alarming. In fact, according to Google, only Android users since 2014, every day, they upload selfies that mount to 94 million pictures per day. Since 2014, every day, 94 million pictures are uploaded by Android users. And again, when I tell this to people, they say, yeah, we have nothing to hide. So everywhere we go, we have cameras, we have in the airport, very tough security, and on all our smartphones, we give access to applications that snoop into our contact lists, into our email addresses. But there is also another fact here. And these are not my words. These are the words of the ex-director 
of the NSA and the CIA, where he said, we kill people based on metadata. What does he mean by that? What does he mean is, the data on your phone, or the metadata, can give a more intimate picture of who you are, who do you talk to, who is your network, more than the conversation itself. So it doesn't matter if a communication provider has an encrypted service, because if a software is able to read your keystrokes, then the encryption has no value. Today, there is also a group of people fighting for their rights in a city called Hong Kong. And they're fighting for their privacy rights because another country wants to enforce more technology and wants to extract more information from the citizens of Hong Kong. And they went protested about that. The technologies that was used was face recognition to track both protesters and the police. So it was like a Tom and, Je Tom and Jerry game. Protesters are tracking policemen through face recognition apps, and the policemen are tracking protesters through face recognition apps. So the protesters started to wearing masks. And what has the government and any government around the world is good at is banning things. So in Hong Kong, it's banned to wear masks now. The makeup on my face today is a message. It's a message in two folds. One to the people of Hong Kong, that if your government banned masks, you can use makeup to break the symmetry of your face and protect yourself against face recognition. I know it's Halloween in a few days. That was not my intention. And the second fold of the message is, in today's digital economy and digital surveillance, the most important asset that we have is our privacy. And we have to fight for that. And always, for the ladies when you're putting makeup, remember this statement that the most important asset we have is our privacy today. So there's a project called CV Dazzle that looked up ways to use fashion, wearables, and makeup to break the symmetry of faces and protect ourselves from face recognition. In this way, you become digitally invisible. Today, it's a luxury to be digitally invisible. But if it's not enough to experience a digital invisible man, I am also similar to the real Donald Trump. I am the real invisible man. For two years, I lived in places like this, refugee camps in the Netherlands. So yes, I'm born in Kuwait, but my father is Syrian. I carry the Syrian nationality. I came to the Netherlands as an expat in 2010, and in 2014, my work contract was not renewed. As a Syrian living in the Netherlands, with the climax of the civil war in my home country, 
And the fact that half of Syria is coming to live in the Netherlands, escaping war, it was not logical for me to go back. So I decided to stay, and I decided to apply for asylum. Now, as a man living in the Netherlands between 2010 till 2014, I tried to become a Dutch man, especially in the city that I lived in, The Hague, the city of peace and justice. So I cheered for Adu Den Haag. I complained about the weather every day. I complained about taxes. And I even got myself a dog. But for immigration, it was not enough. They said, the process is on paper. You have to wait your time until we reach your application. We will decide on your asylum status. On average, an asylum seeker in the Netherlands spends five years to wait on his decision. I was lucky to take it in two years. In those two years, I moved between five camps. This was one of them in Zwolle. And something really life-changing happened there. We were given food every day. It was the same menu, not from a five-star hotel, but for refugees who are coming in search of security and peace, we were happy that the Dutch organizations are taking care of us. So in the morning, we got three slices of bread and we got cheese. For lunch, we got an egg and a cup of soup. And for dinner, it was cooked rice and vegetables. So the past four years before my asylum, I was used to eating kapsalun every day. I said, hey, that's a really good diet now. So I started losing weight. But after a month, I said, no, I, I can't eat that anymore. So we asked the camp organizers, can we cook? You know, I know how to cook. Many Syrians know how to cook. And we really cook delicious food. She said, no, because you're not insured. You don't have an identity. You cannot get an insurance. If something happens for you in the camp, we are responsible for that. And we don't want to be responsible for any accidents in the camp. So I was looking on what can I do? What, what do I have? And as a man, as an invisible man, you don't have an identity. What you have is your smartphone and a 4G connection. And I had a Bitcoin wallet. Now, in 2015, there is a takeaway website called taizbezorgd.nl. They accepted Bitcoin for food deliveries. So I ordered a pizza, a large pepperoni pizza. And chaos broke out in the camp. Because this delivery guy with his bag and his orange jacket, he wants to enter in the camp. And it's not allowed for non-refugees to be there. And the refugees were asking, how did you pay for that? We have cash in our pockets, but we cannot transact online. No one, is, no one will send you anything, especially to a refugee camp, if you don't pay for it up front. 
So no PayPal, no credit cards, no Western Union. And that technology, through this pizza order, changed how we lived in the camp. So we started ordering much food, cigarettes, beer, clothes, and some of us were even able to send money to Syria, a sanctioned country. So why I'm sharing this part of the story is technology is merely a tool, and we decide how to use it. We can use it to pay for child pornography, but we can also use it to include vulnerable populations like refugees. Because a technology like Bitcoin doesn't ask you your first name, your last name, your date of birth, your ethnicity, your skin color. It includes you in a financial system. That same system is excluding 1.2 billion people. So today, we have a chance in breaking these financial barriers using such a technology. It might be complex for many of us in this room even to comprehend it and understand it, and we doubt to use it. But there were also other solutions for that. And here I go back to face recognition, how the government in Hong Kong is using that technology to track its citizens on what they do and give them perhaps ratings and ban them from traveling or exclude them from social services. The same technology is helping refugees in Jordan to give them some sort of financial inclusion, where the central bank of Jordan said, you know what, guys, you don't have an identity, but who cares? We just want to know your faces. We want to know who you are without the extra information of your first name, your last name, and even your gender. Who cares if I'm a female or a male? I just need to get access to a bank account. So together with a German startup, the Central Bank of Jordan and UNHCR introduced programs where iris scans are used to give food vouchers for Syrian refugees. But there is also a downside for that. If such data leaks or hacks, that is a target on every vulnerable person. Because for you guys, if you lose your credit card or if your address is leaked, max what you can do is change your card or change your house. In one of the top hotel chains in the world, they leaked, I think, around 72 million data of their guest lists without mentioning that hotel. But one of my good friends, who is a principal at BCG, had to change his address, change his passport, change his credit card, and many other things due to that leak. He was able to do that. It cost him time and money. But imagine a list of Rohingya refugees leaks in Myanmar. What will happen? They will be slaughtered. So here, we see the importance of privacy, security, in a digital identity. Another example, which is also fresh, because of the privacy rules in the Netherlands, 
the people who are being trafficked, we have to take their consent to help them. So certain agencies reported that the number of people coming to say we are being trafficked dropped from 125 cases to only five cases. So does that mean privacy is helping everyone? No. I, I believe whatever we are doing with technology, regardless if it's AI, blockchain, self-sovereign identities, or face recognition, it is humans who will do the change. Technology by itself is just merely a tool. And always remember that your face is a weapon. Your face is a brand, is an image, and is a weapon at the same time that can be misused. So make sure you fight for the good innate of humanity and always fight for privacy, security, and portability of your identity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CMS podcast. Did you enjoy this episode? Be sure to visit our channel and subscribe to stay up to date with our legal content. Until next time.